Jen Bosworth Ramirez. And I'm Gina Polici. We went to theater school together. We survived it, but we didn't quite understand it. 20 years later, we're digging deep, talking to our guests about their experiences and trying to make sense of it all. We survived theater school, and you will too. Are we famous yet? That's what's going on. So that's the actual truth of the matter. Um, so, but what it is bringing up is like these feelings and you must have, well, I don't know what, I'm assuming you have these feelings when you're taking care of another being of like, I, especially a baby who can't talk, right? I don't know what's wrong with you. There's something wrong with you. Uh, you're not, something's off you can't communicate to me because you don't have this language and uh, Doris can't communicate to me because she's a dog. And, uh, but I am responsible for you because you have no other person to guide you. My husband too, but he's like, you know, whatever he, he doesn't know what's happening either. And um, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of like waiting and saying, okay, well, you know what? Hopefully this doesn't kill you. You know what I mean? Like we're going to figure it out, but it, it, it is, it does bring up these, this issue of what to do in between the time. And this is what I experienced with my mom and tests and everything in tests. And when you send a script off and you're waiting to hear what, how do I work with myself in the in-between times of not knowing of submitting the thing, whether it's a poop sample or a writing sample and hearing the answer. Yeah. Well, so I hear you talking about two, two, at least two things. One being just the feeling that you get when you're taking care of somebody and there's something wrong. And what that usually raises for people is however somebody treated them when there was something wrong with them and they were little. And um, my biggest flaw in that regard is I get scared and then that makes me angry. And I, and I want to be like, I want to invalidate it and say that there's nothing wrong with you or that the worst thing is wrong with you. And it just becomes this thing. And I think for us, it's been a lot that we don't have very much wiggle room in our system here. Like we sort of need everything to be functioning at all times because we don't have much of a safety net in terms of like people to help us or money to help us if there's a big problem. So we both right. get really scared when there's a problem. We get scared if like, if it means somebody, you know, can't go to work or somebody, you know, is going to need a lot of our resource. It just, it, it, it kind of triggers that. The other thing about waiting is also very painful. And um, I feel like there isn't any other way around it, but to say like, here I am waiting and here I am st still waiting and sera, sera, like, you know, it, it, whatever will be, will be. And to try to have that sort of like not being attached to the outcome, which is hard to do. Yeah. And no, and knowing that, you know, for me, it's like, I've done what I, it's like knowing, did I do what I could do? Yes, I did all, we're doing all that we can do, whether it's for this or that, the other thing. And sometimes you haven't done all you can do. And that makes the waiting worse because you're like, I actually half-assed it or I, I fell short on this and we'll see. Um, and then owning that part for me. And then you're right. There is absolutely nothing I can do. I, I, I can't... Um, I can't fix this on my own. I am not a vet and I am not a poop tech. 
I, 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 that's not in my skill set. And, uh, so I just have to boil the chicken and boil the rice and make the rice and, and feed the dog. And she, her mood is fine. Everything is fine. It's just a shitty problem. It's a problem of shitting. And, and, um, I did not anticipate, that's one of the things of having a, a puppy that I did not anticipate was the amount of fecal matter that I come in contact to on a daily basis, right? Come in contact with on a daily basis right now. And I couldn't have known that and and that it's so weird but it does come back to writing and and everything and that you can't know until you know and you and and uh, my amazing mentor psychiatrist said to me marriage you cannot actually be that ready for marriage and childbearing and child rearing marriage makes you ready for marriage in some ways and child rearing makes you ready for child. you you cannot because i wanted to be so prepared like how to prepare and you can do some of the work but like you do you and writing so i talked to um this amazing woman on sunday who invited me to her house in brentwood i was like oh i'm getting fancy here um and she's a chicago play Chicago playwright, um, who is a television writer. Oh, I'm, I'm, my internet is funky too, but anyway. Okay. So, um, she's a Chicago playwright and I was in a play of hers in 1999 and now she writes big wig television and she's about to be a showrunner. And I just said, let me see if, yeah. And she's, she's always been lovely. And I said, let me see if we could just take a meeting and uh, like a, a, whatever. And then she invited me to her house and, and she was just dropping so much wisdom. And I was like soaking it all in, but she said the same thing, which is, cause I was like, okay, like, let's say I, I, um, I get I, I, into a writer's room. Like how, how do you st- how do you do it? She goes, you just shit like anything else. You just show up the first day and you try it out. And I was like, Oh, like everything starts somewhere. Yeah. And, and actually everything is just a series of many, many steps. And it, like, that's the thing to do actually in both of these scenarios is like, okay, so you know, what, what am I, what can I do right now? What can't I do right now? What can I know right now? What can I not know right now? And developing some, um, feeling that you're okay with the not knowing that's that's the thing that I feel like gets triggered for people who are control freaks is just the not knowing is really upsetting and yeah the pandemic is upsetting and the not knowing with you know whatever you're gonna do with your career is upsetting it's all but it's really all unknowns because even something that you really know right now that you really feel to in your heart to be true it may or may not continue in that vein. Right. Yeah. Right. In two seconds. Like it is. And I, you know, I was reflecting on the death of Michael K. Williams. I was thinking of you. You must be so sad about Omar. I burst into tears. And then I thought, if this is fucking an addiction, I'm going to, and it is, it was a heroin addiction. And I was like, didn't I hear, didn't, wasn't he famously like in recovery during his, yeah, I think so. I think he, he had a, it's like, and, and, um, it just, it's just so sad. And so, uh, I felt angry and like addiction, you know, it just triggers so much in my feeling about addiction, about suffering from a disease that we just don't 
uh, understand or care enough to really look at as a, as a, as a national and, and international health crisis. Like we were a lot of people are not interested in looking at it as like, Oh, this is like cancer. So my, so there was this period of time um, with my kids where we'd be listening to some music, you know, like Amy Winehouse. Is she still yes. alive? No. Why'd she die? Alcohol. Okay. Listening to watching a movie with uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Is he still alive? No. <laughs> what did he die from? Drugs. Listening to Whitney Houston. I mean, it's like every singer. Oh my God. And finally they get to like, is that what everybody dies from? Is drugs and alcohol? <laughs> I'm like, not technically everybody, but I can see why you would think it's everybody because so many people who die young, especially die from this. It, it, it's stunning. I mean, it is, it is, um, flat. I'm just flabbergasted. And I, I, I knew that, um, when I saw it, I was like, oh, oh, we have really, re he's someone that I felt we have really been robbed of a genius that could have, you know, he was so great in that show. I started, I helped to cast a little bit Love Lovecraft Country and, and he was in it and it, it, it he's a, he was a genius. Like there, there, there's no way around it. And he was a huge philanthropist and helped black and brown youth in New York city. And it's like, we're just robbed, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman, same thing. We're robbed of like, what could have been, it's so fucked up. So that was really hard. I was like, Oh, Omar's gone. Like Omar is gone. And that is, and apparently he was a really, really nice human being. Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh I know. So yeah. and, and it, it doesn't matter. It like, doesn't matter. No. You could be nice. You could be evil. You could be, it, it'll well, take you just the same. Frankly, it tends to be the, the, the empathic people that, you know, the, it's part. And I hate to say this because I really don't believe in this whole thing of like, you can't be a genius unless you're tortured. But I, I will just say there is a lot of co-occurrence of people who are deeply empathic and people who are great artists, because of course you have to be able to understand and, and, and talk about and portray pain. That's what everybody gets out of art anyway, is a resonance with their own pain. So, you know, so, uh, and I don't know what the answer is, is the answer like, it seems like one of the answers is that everybody has to stop pretending like this isn't a problem and every, and everybody has to stop kowtowing to people who are famous and have money and still be able to say, you can't do that here. You know, I, I, I yes, yeah. this billion we don't do that here is riding on you, but we can't do that here. And, you know, and the studios have to be willing to take a loss if it means saving somebody's life. Hey, let me run this by you. Yesterday about loyalty. Hmm. And I was saying, you know, loyalty has kind of gone by the wayside as like a core value that you hear people talking about. And part of that is for good reason, because maybe previously the kind of loyalty that got talked about was really just codependency, like just be loyal to everybody, even if they're hurting you. But we've thrown out the baby with the bathwater in this. And I'm just finding like, people don't have any loyalty. And like, for example, 
you know, the people who are closest to that actor, if they were really loyal to him and they saw that he was suffering, they would have had to be willing to overlook their own financial you know, needs or desires long enough to actually be loyal to him. Because what it ends up being is that everybody's just loyal to what everybody else is, can give them instead of about who, who they are. And um, like I've noticed it in my children, they don't seem to have, they don't seem to even like, it's like an antiquated idea to them, you know, about being loyal. Loyalty. Yeah. And I was just wondering what your like thoughts are about it and where, what place loyalty has in your life. Yeah. I mean, I think I really resonate with the fact that like, I think there was a, um, a a loyalty turned, you know, uh, self-sacrifice and self and, and like harm to self, right. Of the original, for me, of my family of origin, right. So loyal that it becomes people pleasing and then ultimately, destruction and okay fine but i do think that there is such like there used to be right there 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 um there you seem to be and maybe this was an illusion uh 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 an idea that people were more important than things, you know? And I think that's gone by the wayside and I think things are now more important than people and we're seeing it in that it's interesting like companies um like like amazon right so the horror stories and yet it's so so convenient we all you don't but uh people just order from amazon and shit um and then there's outliers that everyone it's interesting tout says like oh my god this guy who made the minimum salary for each employee seventy thousand dollars right and the company's doing great and blah 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 but it takes a lot of work and nobody's following his lead, right? Mm-hmm. But he's loyal. He's he's loyal. And I think the people who are willing to take the hit and willing to take the hit financially in order to be truly loyal to people over things, we, we respect them, we're in awe of them, but nobody follows suit because exactly what you said, everyone is out. There is a real desperation to take care of self, capitalism, and... Nobody wants to risk losing the money, losing the deal to be loyal to a human being. It's really fucked up. So we, I think that loyalty has gone from being loyal to people, humans, to being loyal to, to a dollar and to yeah. a profit and to a machine. And that's why for me, when I hear stories about people who are like really loyal, you know, still to their, to their family, but a a lot of times in business in Hollywood, when you hear the stories of like, no, 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 my rep or my whoever stuck, you know, stuck by me when, when no one would buy my shit or when they believed in me, it's really touching. And we all love those stories. A la moonlight, a la this, a la that. But Nobody takes a risk to freaking do it. It's so bizarre. It's like everyone, then you celebrate it and give it an Oscar. But the the horror story behind how it got made or or just the trauma about trying to get these pictures and these movies and these television shows made is like so brutal. It's like we love a good loyalty story, but we're not willing to put our money where our mouth is, you know? It's, it's weird. Yeah. In this weird way, it's almost, I think it must al- almost reflect like, people's 
basic inability to <clears throat> to be loyal to their own values. You know, I mean, I think that we all come to this earth with like an inherent set of values. Now, granted, if you grow up in a family where there's nothing, where that's never right. enforced, you're not maybe not likely to hold on to it. But most people have like some basic sort of values. It's, but we, you're right. We're willing to abandon them in a moment if we think it's going to get us something. And what we don't realize is everything that we lose and when we abandon our values and like, yeah. and the thing that I'm always trying to tell my kids is, you know, like an example would be, well, why should I do that if they don't do that? That's like a constant refrain in my house. And I'm always saying, because if it's your value to do that, then you do it no matter how the other person is receiving it or no matter if you're the only person who's throwing right like this is the, this it comes up a lot with like littering you know and yeah. I'll, my kids make fun of me because i'll carry trash in the car if i can't find a place to put it and they're you know and they're like just throw it on the ground and i it, like especially if it's a place where there's a lot of trash mom there's sure. already a ton of trash on the ground what and i'm like because that's not my value my value is to throw things away. And it doesn't matter if I'm in a pristine place where there's not a piece of trash or I'm in a trash, like I'm not going to contribute to the problem. And it's just really hard to instill in people. Yeah. And I think uh, if you look at it, I mean, not to bring it back, it, well, but to bring it back to the internet, like the, the culture, the social media culture is so fast. So just follow the trend. I mean, that's all that happens. You follow a trend, you get rich. You jump on a bandwagon early enough, you, you make millions. And so n values don't really, they don't have a monetary, you don't get paid to have good values. Right, 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 right. Nobody right. gives a shit. So yeah. it's a thankless thing. But at the end of the day, I think it's true. What, I mean, it really, for me, comes down to when I'm at the end of the day, whenever the big end of the day is, how do I want to leave the planet in my soul, in my heart? Do I want to feel like I did what I could to contribute to helping or did I not? I cannot live with some, and some are negotiable, right? But then there are certain non-negotiables that I like living in denial versus living in truth about um, feelings and about um, what is actually happening in, in my life and with my relationships. Okay. I, I would rather, that's a strong value of mine to look for the truth and to try to live from a place of authenticity. Don't always do it. Not easy. Not always. But when I'm dying, whenever that is, whether it's quickly or slowly, I want to be able to say, look, yeah, I fucking tried and I contributed to trying to live by this value. Did it always work? No. But did I try my best? Yes. Okay. I can say that versus what did I do? I just, right. Right. Yeah. I, I, I went and got a, you know, whatever it is. I, I, I you know, I bought a Mercedes G wagon. Okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. And, and with the exception of the sociopaths of the world, like at the end of the day, you don't feel good if you're going to sleep in your Mercedes G wagon and you've like, and you've like sold out all of your friends along the way. No, like, it doesn't feel you good don't. actually. 
No. And it, and it comes back to what that client said to, you know, that client said to me, the, the gangster, right. Did I tell you the mobster who the old mobster, I saw this old mobster as a client who was semi-famous, you know, like in the world. And he said to me, he was like, he got out of federal prison. He was like 80 years old when he got out and he had to see me. He was mandated. And I saw him and he said, let me tell you something. If you don't have your emotional and physical health, you've got nothing nothing. I have had money. I've had this, I've had that. It doesn't mean anything. I'm miserable. I'm now bankrupt emotionally and spiritually. And I would trade it all for that. And I really believed him because this is a guy who freaking had it all. And he was literally like clutching my hand, pleading with me saying, take care of your emotional and physical health. Cause without it and, and your like center, because without it, nothing else matters. And then the guy died. Right. So like he passed away, like I heard like five years later or whatever. And he was, I don't know if he ever got to a place where he felt better, but Jesus, I was like, well, okay, dude, I would consider it an accomplishment that he even got to the place where he could say that to you because I know people very well who have died without ever even and who have lost everything while they were alive and still didn't get to the place of understanding that it's only about you know what's here oh. that matters oh it's so crazy i'm not happy no i'm not happy no yeah okay cool so we're gonna be Today on the podcast, we're talking with Kelly McAdams. Kelly is someone who went to the theater school with us at DePaul University, and she is a businesswoman. She's a wedding planner that just sort of slays all things wedding planning, and she's delightful and humble and sassy and funny. So please enjoy our conversation with Kelly McAdams. Kelly McAdams. Wait, do you go by McAdams? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Okay. Kelly McAdams, congratulations. You survived theater school. I did. And I have one million memories of you (laughs) from that time, uh, which which we'll get into. But generally, to start us off, um, what have you been up to for the last 25 years? Go. (laughs) (laughs) What have you been up to? Really nothing. Not much. You know, I just, I chill. I, um, pina coladas. Oh, yes. That's good. Um, yeah, that feels, feels about right. (laughs) Um, not doing the rat race at all of life and job and kids and family and yeah. So all, all of the above, um, I'm, I'm living the dream, living in Los Angeles, uh, not the, acting dream that got crushed years ago oh Um, wait wait this is exciting this is so but i i mean you you do so many i mean like you have you have a thriving career you have uh two children i believe Mm -hmm. and uh right and uh and a husband but why let's let's go back a little bit um because we're i'm all about hearing about dreams being resurrected and and squashed (laughs) and then resurrected again so but first i i were you were you a kid that acted were you a, a child actor I wasn't a child actor but I did get into it about sixth grade and then um I high school is when I dove in so I'd say 15 I I was 
I was in it to win it. Um, it was in Texas and Houston. And so if you know anything about Texas, we do everything on a bigger scale than anyone does. So our theater department was intense. We were like the five star, we would travel, compete. It was very cutthroat, so to speak. So Ooh, were you on the, yeah. the, the um, was there like the, the, the team, the speech team, or was it straight up yep. acting? Oh, okay. Oh, so okay. I, we would do um, the, the speech competitions. You would do a comedy or a drama. And then we would also tour with um, the UIL shows. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. Basically it was like a 45 minute show that you work on for three months and you travel and then you compete and you go to states and then you hopefully win states, but sometimes you'd come in second or third. And yeah, it was, it was, our school was pretty top notch. It was cool. Was it an arts high school? No, not by any means. It was just a public, I mean, football was everything. It was again, Texas. Um, We just had a incredible theater teacher, Miss Erlinson. And she, she wanted to win. <laughs> Always. <laughs> I love that. Honestly, yeah. uh, we could do, I've said this before, we could do a whole episode just about like inspiring high school. And for me, it was actually junior high uh, drama teachers and how, like what a great impact they had, even if for people who didn't pursue it, just like the, the passion that those teachers yeah. had. It just also kept me in such a straight line. You know, I was not hanging around the best kids and I still hung around the not best kids, but I still succeeded because I had to, I had to show up. I had to, you know, somebody held me accountable. So that was, she was quite, quite important for sure. And then she was the one that honestly introduced me to theater schools, um, conservatories. So it was a big deal. Um, The upperclassmen, I'd watch them go through the process and look at different schools. And each year, um, certain ones would be better than the others. And um, kind of rank which ones you wanted to audition for. And yeah, it was, um, it wasn't like it was out of the blue going to a conservatory. It was part of the program, so to speak. That's amazing. So you yeah. had, so she, did she like, did she know about them and, and, and educate herself mm-hmm. on them and then like show you brochures? Cause there's, we have a whole string of podcasts where we talk about the, the yeah. colorful De, DePaul brochures. And I still remember them too. Um, um, but did she, did she like, would she help you make like choices about where you were that is where is she is she still with us oh yeah 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 she is oh good Um, oh good she's still in the universe um I don't I think she's retired I don't think she's teaching anymore um still in Texas uh and, and she's not Texas at all like that's an interesting like I don't consider myself Texas and I think she was also about that as well um but but yeah she would like the year before me um there's a super talented uh late girl um who was going to North Carolina School of the Arts and that was like a big deal and I remember our teacher just being like so proud that she got in and she was going to go to like one of the best schools in the country um and so when I approached her saying I'd like to go to a conservatory, we we discussed like the different ones and what we thought that my capabilities would be. And, um, you know, I don't think I was at the level of North Carolina School of the Arts. So um, we honed in on NYU and DePaul um, and, you know, prepared our pieces. And you, it's, it's, yeah, kind of grooms 
you to, to, to the audition process. Do you remember your audition and what it was like for you? You know, it's funny. So I've been listening to the podcast and I love it, by the way. It's so fun. Um, I don't remember my pieces that I did, but I absolutely, and it's funny to listen to Jeffrey Brown because I feel like we were very similar with the NYU DePaul situation. Um, I drove, NYU was at Dallas, and so we had to drive three hours, my mom and I, um, and it was was like this old man behind a desk, and he was just like, do a monologue. I'm like, all right, like do my monologue, and he's like, another one do another one one more I was like oh thankfully I had all this like going and so I left it was like 15 minutes and my mom's like that's it I was like yeah I guess I don't know so we drove three hours back home um and then I went to DePaul's which was in Houston so I could just drive because I lived outside of Houston and it was Rick Murphy who has a very special place in my heart and it was magical like I loved I just remember loving every second. I mean, I was definitely like you got a little weirded out, like, what are we doing? But it was so fun. And, and, and then we, I feel like I changed for some reason. I don't know why I have yeah. this memory, but yeah, I changed into like a nice dress and then I did yeah. my monologue. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. People and- wore people. There's all this talk about like people wore like sweatpants. Some people had jeans to do yeah. the movement part. Some people didn't know what the movement part was <laughs> and were wearing like, you know, slacks and all that stuff. But then you, you changed I remember it. I remember people bringing sweats and stuff. And then for their pieces, they, they, they like got back into their, right. their audition outfit. So you wore a dress. Yes. Okay. But you don't remember your pieces, I Kelly? I don't. I don't, which is a bummer. But we used to create our own. So we would cut scripts together. So it wouldn't necessarily be a, a traditional monologue. And, and that was part of the speech part of it. So we would always, so we got really creative with our, with our, item which might have helped as well so um but yeah and, and I got in both schools which was exciting and and again very parallel to Jeffrey Brown's story um basically my parents were like NYU is ridiculously expensive and yes you know you could either work and go to college or you could have a full college experience and go to DePaul so yeah I chose the latter and so did you move to LA as soon as you graduated no, no. I stayed about four years in Chicago. Um, I got zero bites. <laughs> That's so okay. That's so bad. I was so bad. Anyway, I mean, you guys have touched on that. The, the monologues were just terrible. I mean, I think two people in our class had a good monologue and that was it. Yeah. Um, so I was in, in the rough pile. So I came back to Chicago <laughs> and so bad. Um and and yeah, I did um, I did theater and did some commercials. I was in um, Shake a Groove thing with Eric Slater. That was a real fun, crazy experience. Um, worked on like some independent films. Just kind of like you know, I would wait tables, make some money, and then do a, a show that would last two months, make no money, you know, burn through everything, and then go wait tables and kind of did that for about four years. Um, yeah. Go ahead, Buzz. I was just going to say, you know, uh, taking it back a little bit, something that you said. So you, you, um, no bites in LA, but do you remember those pieces or that monologue? Did you, did you, did you, oh, what was your showcase monologue? 
It was so bad. It was, I don't remember where it was from. And this is probably why, because it was so, I was, I was a girl in a waiting room about to get an abortion. Oh my Yes, this is ringing a bell. This is ringing a bell. This is what you want. This is how you want to showcase yourself in front of Los Angeles. Depressing. Like it was just bad. And I remember Jane, oh my gosh. I like had a blue fancy t-shirt with like black pants. I mean, I couldn't be more nondescript and (laughs) it was, it was just terrible. It was all sorts of terrible. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to be laughing. I just what I what I'm just flashing on is this image of us all in the green room, you know, with our hair and our makeup and what it. I just want to look at us now and be, and I just want to yell, "You're all a bunch of idiots!" It's not going to work out. But it did work out. It did work out for some of us, just not all of us or most of us or not the way not the way we thought it would work out. Like the 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 whole thing about this right it's like the dream right to be a famous actor that most of us had not all of us because some people we've interviewed have been like you know what i just wanted to do theater and fuck the rest Mm -hmm. but most of us thought i'm going to be a star i'll speak for myself and then it just didn't work out that way like when people are it just didn't work out that way so Mm -hmm. so when did you realize like Fuck it wasn't working out. <laughs> yeah, or like that that maybe you didn't want to put your energy into the dream yeah. of being a famous actor anymore. Um, it was a slow it wasn't a moment. It was kind of I mean, I am a money-driven person. I will say that. I don't have a lot, which probably is why I'm driven is because I want more. Sure. Um, like most people. And I was waiting tables and just you know, on the, I didn't get the whole system. I would do some theater and that was terrible in LA, terrible. Um, And then I would book a little something here or there, but I would make no money or barely any money and get an audition every few months. I just, I didn't, I didn't get it. Like it wasn't fulfilling at all. Okay, so that's um, the key. I think that's yeah. really important to know is that maybe there's something in pivoting about the fulfillment quotia that we that we're we're like we're like not uh if you're not fulfilled and you realize you're not fulfilled, you have a choice. We can mm-hmm. keep doing the unfulfilling thing, which sounds which I've done, but then it sounds like you pivoted and you did something else. Exactly. Or many other things. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, we can, so I, when I moved here, um, one of Patrick Belton, very good friend of mine, ours, um, he kind of took me under his wing after a couple of years and was like, because he has the DJ business. And he was like, hey, Kelly, why don't you come to this wedding I'm DJing? I think you'd be a good wedding coordinator. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. You know, I thought, I, you know, it's just yes and. Yes. I like to say. So I went and I was yeah, I could do this. So I booked a couple of weddings um, at some really great venues. And I guess I did a good job because then the venues just put me on their list. And I created, I was like, oh, I guess I should have like a, a company and I should like do a website and uh, did all the things. And 
just slowly started building this business while waiting tables while still had my toe in the acting world. I wasn't ready to say goodbye to that yet. Um, and it was, it was an interesting, I finally realized the connection is that a wedding is theater, it's production, um, lighting, sets, costume. Every Saturday is opening night for me. So mm. I'm the producer of the show. I send them down the aisle and it's like curtains open, here we go. And it's for six, seven hours versus two hours. <laughs> And then it ends and it gets all broken down and I move on to the next show, so to speak, you know? So you're like, uh, you're like a PT Barnum, <laughs> you, go, <laughs> you, you, you set up in, a, in one town and then you put it all back in your wagon. Wait, yes. I have to ask, can you just tell us one terrible, disastrous wedding story? I mean, oh, there's, I, I feel like, well, there. Most of them, I walk away and I completely block out because they're, I shouldn't say they're all, in case anybody listens to this, they're all wonderful and people are amazing. Yes. Um, <laughs> and their marriages are all going to last. <laughs> oh, so many laughs. Um, it's just, it's such a heightened experience on so many levels that people, it, it, it tends to bring out some not great sides of humans. Um, so I, I tend to block out one kind of favorite story is um I married two cousins unknowingly oh, okay. uh, wait. that was yes so I'm I, wait they they didn't know they were cousins or oh, you didn't know they were cousins I didn't know they <laughs> okay. totally knew so I had planned this whole wedding with the mother of the bride which happens a lot so sometimes the mother just comes in and we're just doing it um, and she was lovely and I liked her. She was she a total spitfire. She was from Texas, um, had money, definitely. She was like, just here's money. And I was like, I like you even more. And um, the wedding day, I'm going through my timeline and she comes up to me and she's like, so let's do the grandfather's toast. And I was like, oh, great. Yes. Oh, is it Erica's grandfather? Right. And she goes, it's both their grandfather. And I went, I'm sorry, what? And she goes, yes, my brother's kid. And I mean, I, my face probably turned and she, I mean, comes whipping back. She's like, it is legal in 25 states. And I was just like, what? Okay. It was that okay. is wow. So yeah. wild. And I was like, oh, okay. The best, the, the best part is that these kids live in Louisiana, but in Louisiana, you have to have a blood test to get married. So they couldn't get married there. So they had to come to Los Angeles or to California to get married. I was like, OMG. That's and fantastic. Their last song of the night was We Are Family. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, what else could it possibly have been? I what mean, uh, oh my gosh, Kelly. That's fantastic. So that's always my favorite. That's always better than a disaster. You know, disasters, yeah. they happen. But like, yo, it's just like a family dynamic. Like, and that I really get into. It's like listening to the toes and how are you connected here? And ooh, who really like, uh -huh. you know, it's, it's a funny. Oh, so you like, you like finding the story still. I mean, that's, yeah. that's the common thread is you're still telling stories or you're still drawing out the, the stories. Yeah. Um, where what is the state of weddings right now like did mm. has it gone the direction of uh 
everything is totally scaled down now because of the pandemic? No. I wish. <laughs> no. Um, I did two back-to-back last weekend um, and nearly killed me. And it was about 140 people and then 180 people. And just partying, dancing. To their benefit, It uh, 100% of the guests were vaccinated and they did make sure of that. So, um, But, I mean, we have a vendor staff of... 30, 40 people, which they also said all oh, are vaccinated and they were outdoors. So it's this and that. I mean, I, I COVID test once a week because I've got two small kids yeah. that can't get back, you know, they're two and four. So um, it's, it's, it's wild. Um, I'm, I'm basically doing a wedding every single weekend because the, the best way to explain it is normally in a year, I do anywhere from like 15 to 18 weddings. And in four months right now, from July through the beginning of November, I'm doing 15 weddings. So it's just like, Yikes. yeah, it's because people po- people postponed before, mm-hmm. and now they want to get them in before it co- show if we shut down again. Okay. Exactly. And oh, some, I mean, I, have, yeah, yeah, Go they've ahead. been engaged since, or we've been working since 2019. I have one in next week that's um, on their fourth date. We've just like pushed. And, and and you replan it because you have to get all the vendors on board to the new date, replan it. Kelly! It yeah, it's been... This is insane. But, you know, I have to point out one thing. You said that you, quote, got into this by, like, weddings just... You booked two weddings. So you don't just book two weddings. You know what you're doing. I always like to point out when people, like like undersell themselves like i couldn't just quote book two weddings you patrick it's interesting that patrick was the connector here which is Mm -hmm. awesome because he's such a connector but also you Mm -hmm. have what is it that you love about it like why what makes you good at it and what do you love about it um i think just i'm a real like gina i'm a virgo i'm logistics i'm i'm schedule oriented i like um I also like the control. I like being the producer. I like being top showrunner. You know, I, I'm everybody's boss, um, which is a position I enjoy. But at the same time, it's harmonious. Like I'm not, and I, I say this out loud to my clients. I'm like, I'm not a power position person. I'm not an ego driven person. I just like to get it done on the best possible level and have all of us do our best possible. You know, it's like the photographer is not going to succeed unless I set them up to succeed. So we've got to all be this great team. And that is that that the vendors are my favorite part of it, to be really honest. You know, it's, it's hmm. the clients are, you know, the main aspect and we're executing what they want, but having all these different personalities and, and, putting it all together and then sending it off and it being done. And it's really nice. Cause then once I I'm done, I'm done. So right. there's no yeah. lingering, like there's no, no follow up wedding, you know, like <laughs> day, day seven of the wedding, you know? Yeah. I know exactly why Patrick thought of you because, um, what the whole apartment three thing was basically just a bunch of bozos, but then you guys, mostly you, you and Stephanie, I well, no, but the get get it done person was you. you. You were the person who said, "Let's have a group picture. Let's do this outing together." Right? Isn't that true? I guess I don't know. I not I I don't know if I have those memories of me being, but I, it, it would make sense. 
I feel like that is just kind of who I am in in a daily life is, you know, because you, yeah, because you, um, you organized some facet of whatever we did for showcase. Like you rented the car. You are just, I have a great picture of you and Judy sitting in the front in the convertible. Yeah. You, I feel like you did that. And then maybe you arranged when we went to the beach, I feel like I didn't do any of that. And I just tagged along with you. So (laughs) you've had the skill for a long time. What was your experience? You're a planner. How was your experience? at the theater school? I mean, that's a huge question, but like, why don't you tell us, I'm really curious about your perspective of what it was like to be in the nineties at the theater school. Yeah. That, and I, again, listening to this, this podcast is great. I, I know people have said it. It's so therapeutic and it's like, it's just an explosion of peeling off layers. Like all of a sudden a show will come back to me and I hadn't thought about it in 25 years. Um, because I will say in LA, I am around a lot of theater school people. We never, we never talk about it. It's just, we just have this common bond that makes us friends, mm-hmm. but we, but diving in this world. So I've been thinking a lot about it and I kind of feel like I had two experiences at the theater school, which is kind of the first two and a half years. I really loved, I mean, I, I just have really joyful memories. I, Again, loved Rick Murphy's class. I was so just open to it all. And, and again, yes, in and I loved yoga, movement to music. I thought it was ridiculous, but on the most fun level. And then it shifted. And I would say it's when we start. it was the casting process. It was just, I feel like they pitted us against each other in such a way that I, the, the fun, the enjoyment just fell out. Um, and I started stepping away personally. I know like I got a, a waiting table job between my third and fourth year that was in Boys Town. So I had a whole new world. Pepper, I, Pepper Lounge. Is that Pepper, Pepper Lounge? Lounge. Um, and I just, I, yeah. And, and, you know, to what you said too, Gina, it's like when you just get cast in these terrible role after role and you're not like, what am I working towards? And then in the classroom, yeah, I just, there was, I remember Christina Dare. Um, she did Shakespeare, right? Or voice? Or... Yeah, yeah, Shakespeare. Okay. Uh-huh. And I always wanted to be the Lady Macbeth, the powerhouse. The, you know, I thought the Ophelias and the, you know, Juliet's were ridiculous and not worth my time. And I was very vocal about this. And so what she cast me in as my scene was Roman and Juliet. Juliet. And the balcony scene, the worst scene with Chris Gerber. <laughs> and I remember, oh, yes, I remember, oh my gosh, I was on a ladder, a 12 foot ladder. What? With, oh. Do you remember those black like separators? I don't know what you call yes, them. Yes, yes. Partition things. Partition. Those little slats. Yeah. Flats. I, I have like an adverse reaction right now. They put that up. That was my balcony, but I couldn't touch it because it was like, if you, sneeze it would oh fall over and Chris Gerber was on the other side of it trying to act up at me and I'm trying to <sighs> woo uh, it, it was so bad <laughs> and I just remember sitting and seeing all like the, like the faculty and just being like 
they're seeing me in this light and this is not the light that I, I should have a voice in what I want to say myself to, for you to see and to judge me on because you're going to, you're going to grade this essentially. And anyway, that's like one of my, I would say negative um, experiences. It just, I I never, I don't understand why they, they didn't work with us and lift us up and really say, oh, you, that's, that's what you want to be. You want to be a powerhouse, Kelly. You want to be the, the, you know, the powerful, what, great, let's do it. Let's work on that. Yes. Let's have every single scene you do be that character. Why not? So Yeah. I mean, the psych, the, the ex-therapist in me is like, my mind is wild at work here saying like, maybe perhaps Christine felt so something in her own life that she couldn't stand like her power. She, I feel like this is a lot of teachers, their own power. They felt so stripped in whatever reason for whatever, I don't know why, but then it was like, and Gina and I were just talking about this about acting out. So their way of acting out these teachers across the board, I think was to, to not allow students the the sort of uh, growth, blooming, blossoming uh, experience that really would have been a, such a beautiful thing. Like, why mm-hmm. withhold it? There's Absolutely. a lot of withholding, a lot of like, we're not going to let you, we're going to hold you, hold you back. And it, it, I don't know if it was supposed to make us stronger, but really it just led to a lot of rage, addictions, uh, <laughs> of eating disorders. And like, come on, I think you're right. Like All if we could have. If we could have joined with our teachers and been like, yeah. oh, you would have been a, a fan. Did you ever get to play Lady M? Because you would be fantastic. No, I did do, um, gosh, and now I can't believe how much I studied Shakespeare and now I know nothing. It's great. But I feel like um, one of the Richards' wife. Yeah. I forget which one, who I, I did her. I, one of her monologues and it was probably one of my favorite moments and who knows if I was good at it but I but I liked doing it and that's the whole you know it's like I wasn't outside of myself judge I was in it and portray the human this Um, is such a great example by the way of the way of the grass is always greener phenomenon because I think I did play Lady Macbeth uh, for a scene or I I remember doing a monologue and, and I'm, it's not like I remember this specifically, but I'm 100% sure that I would have been sitting at the audience going, I would never get cast as Juliet. Kelly's so lucky. So, you know, that's so interesting. it's, it's, it's its own flip out cage that we put ourselves mm-hmm. into in terms of, you know, this, this sometimes for people, a huge disconnect between who, who they think they are and her or how, how they want to be perceived and then how other people tend to pigeonhole and, and perceive them. So that, and that's also just true of life, by the way, like Mm -hmm. (laughs) there can be a lot of that too. Like a lot of people feeling misunderstood, but you know, that, that, the inside and their core, they feel they are this person. Yeah. And it's like, I don't know why you just give it a shot. I mean, you said you wanted to play Lady M. What is the harm in allowing a child student the, the, the process of trying out Lady Macbeth? What is the harm? That is my whole question about like at conservatories. It's like, what is the harm in building someone up? What are you afraid? We're going to get so big for our britches that we're going to, our heads going to explode and we're going to become fascists. I don't, I don't understand, but well, you know, it's, whatever. It's 
that's interesting, Jed. You made me think about how um, the teachers and also it, for me, it kind of clicked in that first two years. I feel like we're our most supportive teachers. You know, it was Betsy and it was um, John Jenkins and Rick Murphy. And they they just wanted Patrice. They just wanted to see us succeed. And to exactly to just to have these little minds just explode and then we got in we shifted into these academia felt like world that just i mean i I just felt i felt beat up a lot those last you know that last year and a half for sure did you get warned in all that business kelly i did not i did not so that was a little relief that's probably why i enjoyed my first and second year so much maybe you know it's that it wasn't nagging at the back of my head and I could just play instead of fearing the end. I remember, were we in the same, were we in the same improv class for your one? I remember, yeah. right? You year were, I, you were hilarious. I remember some hilarious improvs with you and thinking, oh, okay, this, this woman is um, going against type in that I saw you as this really beautiful sort of demure, this is looks only, I didn't know. But, and then you were really funny is what I recall and really fierce and really um, a spitfire yourself. And so it just makes me, what I'm finding when I hear stories like this is, and, and think think about all of us is I wish I could go back and say, and be the teacher then. And, you know, say like, Oh my gosh, you're going to be put into this box of like a Southern bell. Don't just rebel. Like you can rebel, but we just didn't have that. I mean, that's but Yeah. That that's very kind. Thank you. Like I reflecting on all of this as well. I, the exact same thought, especially that last quarter of like Jane Alderman and tying it to coming out to LA, I, I would meet with managers and agents and they're like, okay, so, so who, like, what are you? And I was like, oh, oh, I could do all, I could do all, do everything. I could do drama and I could do comedy. Oh, I could do accents. Oh, I could do Shakespeare. Um, I could put on makeup and be 80. And I mean, <laughs> they looked at me like I was a crazy person because it, and I, I think about that. I'm like, why didn't anyone say, Hey, Kelly, you're red-haired, freckled, you're kind of quirky, run with that. Be the, the you know, that type of actor, hone in on it, book some jobs, get some credits, you know, have some weight with your team, and then go in for all the, like, stuff that you want to do that's different from that. But I feel like they never, they never gave us our strengths. They never said this is what I see in you run with it. But do you think if somebody had said, this is what we think your type is, would you have agreed with it? Probably not. It's a good point. (laughs) Um, I mean, that's the thing. It's like, it it was, it was all about, for most of us, it was all about who we wanted to be so much more than who we actually were. Mm -hmm. And, 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 and by the way, there's nothing wrong with having an aspirational self. Maybe we are now who we wanted to be in some way, shape or form, but it just like, if then we were probably impossible to talk to, (laughs) you know, in terms of like with the adults trying to tell us what our lives and our careers were going, were going to be like. So you did have an agent and manager in LA, but you just didn't book enough or. I had a manager, didn't have an agent. I had an agent in Chicago. Um, 
yeah, just didn't, nothing clicked. I mean, I'd go out. I, I also didn't have the, the trait, the TV. I would take classes. I would do commercial. Um, I also developed, which I had a little bit of in school, just a real, just fear, um, uh, stage fright. And so I have the uh, same you, thing later oh in my life. Gosh. It's crazy. Like I walk into any social situation as well. And it's just like the nerves are over. And so you walk into a room with everybody just staring at you, not wanting you to succeed for whatever reason. And it just, yeah. So I think the fear really, I didn't have that young, you know, fearlessness that I did as a child. Like as I got older, it just became more and like more constricting. And then I just finally was like, yeah, I can't. I'm, I, I do enjoy now um, being behind the scenes. I, I will say that is something I, I'm not, I like being the puppet master. Are you interested at all? Because I'm thinking, I'm like, whoa, you would be, I mean, I, I don't know, but do you ever have inspira- aspirations to produce like film or TV or no? I, I don't because it's so foreign to me and things that I don't know kind of, they scare me. Um, my husband is, a producer and in the producing world. So I, and it's really interesting because at the end of the day, when we talk about our lives, they're incredibly similar and paralleled. They're just at different levels. Um, And I see how hard it is for him and how, you know, it's still, it's a rat race. It's job after job. There's no, so, you know, I think right now I'm just going to kind of do my thing where I'm at and, and, Mm -hmm. and I enjoy, I still, love you know I mean television nowadays is beyond and and I used to back in the day go to a movie a week you know I just walked down to the Vista theater when I walked lived in Silver Lake and would just plop down the middle of the day and just watch a movie and I still love everything about it I'm just it's not a place for me to be in front of the camera yeah 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 so uh, I cut you off earlier when you were starting to talk about how you loved the first two years. And then you were starting to say that the last two years was very specialized. And did you have a moment of, wait, is this what we're doing here? I didn't know that this is what we were doing. I don't think so. You mean in the first two years? No, in the second two, because because that's how it was for me. It was when I got into that um, camera class that I went, oh, is this what we're doing? And I've said many times, I felt like I I was the only person who didn't know that that was coming. Mm -hmm. Um, But 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 it sounds like also you're saying that the technique stuff about the last two years, or or you said it was casting. I don't know. Tell me, tell me what it was about the last two years. Exactly. Yeah. It was a lot of the casting, you know, it's all the shows and, you know, who kept getting the good roles and who just didn't. And, um, and just feeling like I just, again, just didn't have a voice, which was, you know, um, frustrating um, and not finding the joy that I was in the first two years of, of the, the fun side of it all. Um, I did, you know, I was a through and through like theater, you know, I'm, I'm going to do this. Um, but I do have to say when the Jane Alderman class came up, I was like, oh, okay. I wish we would have done more of that. I mean, I will concur with every single person that's come through on this of just like, that is a whole year. That would have been amazing. Um, and it just didn't, it was 
so touched upon on such a, you know, glossy level where, you know, like the commercial world, I, I just no interest whatsoever, except for the money, you know, it's like, yeah, it, that didn't click with me. I was trying to be a, a, a truest, I guess, of the theater and, and then you do the theater and you make no money and it's just right. like this hamster wheel and um there's one thing that nobody's talked about which is really funny um the la people is when i moved here we were all frustrated and not auditioning and not working and blah blah, blah. and so we created a group called the living room i don't know if you ever heard about this jen or yeah wait a minute yes yes was so, larry bates involved it was not larry it was patrick oh. dalton jeffrey brown brian kimmett ryan kitley there's so many people that were on here. It was so funny. Um, uh, everybody's going to be mad. Stuart. Remember Stuart? Oh, yeah. Stuart Levine. Um, oh, Wendy. Wendy Carter. Um, Wendy! Eli Goodman, Kristen's husband. Wow. And so we would, every week, we would meet in Patrick's, Rob Adler, he was one. Um, we'd meet in Patrick's living room and we would work. We would do scene work. We would... Um, I bring in casting directors to give us notes. <gasps> other, yeah, it was really, it was a cool. And then we did a showcase. <laughs> you did? We did it. Um, I don't know if you remember the Geisha House. Yes, like this, yes. Yeah, super fancy. Brian yes. Kimmett was a bartender there, and so we got their private room. We invited all these casting directors and directors and whatnot, and we did instead of doing monologues, we did scenes and the scene work and. It was it was a blast. There was definitely um, some moments of previous, you know, show work or, you know, that I was like, oh, this is bringing back PTSD from DePaul. Um, but yeah, so we, oh, wait, we did you know a little what's showcase. so weird. What year was this? I think I was at the showcase. I feel like you were. I, I yeah, feel like... I think I came with Judy. I think Judy and I went. This was what year? Like 2000 something? It had to have been, let's see, I moved to LA in 2001, so it had to be yes. three years, so 2000. I was there. I was there. <laughs> it was good work. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I'm telling you right now, I remember being very impressed by the level of professionalism and the sort of ingenuity of the sh showcase because it was the first showcase that I was doing scenes instead of monologues. Mm -hmm. Wait, I remember it being cool. Did people come? Did you get a good response? Yeah, we had a full house. And we, I mean, and then one of the scenes was like a five person. It was like a scene, scene. Yeah, it was really, I mean, I think a couple people got some work out of it, but at the end of the day, it just felt good to do something in LA, right. have people come and not be a theater right. production. Right. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. That's so funny. I love that you were there. <laughs> I remember it. And I remember thinking, man, they're doing something nobody else is doing. Like, it was like a Steppenwolf of LA in the in the sort of the showcase world. Like it felt really organic. In the Gaza mm -hmm. house. <laughs> that is, I, I, so I, when I think about the way I, I imagine that you survived theater school, I imagine it was a, in large part due to your relationships. You had a really mm -hmm. tight knit group of friends who all pretty much moved to LA if I'm, mm -hmm. if I'm right. Um, and, and do that's what 
a community will do for you when you're in this lonely, what can, it's ironic how lonely acting can be as a profession, especially if your friends are actors and everybody's up for the same role and there's lots of competition. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is something that the community can do is help you stay engaged with what you're doing and stay engaged with what you loved about it instead of all of this dog eat dog, you know, there's, there's only so much pie and I want a piece of it. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you still, are you still with all of those people? Are you still, I mean, you mentioned Patrick, but are you still friends with everybody? Yeah. And that's, that is again, kind of reflecting through all this, um, the friendships that I've kept and have from there is, worth theater school a thousand times over. I would do it again and again and again, as torturous as it was at times, for sure, for sure. Like, I mean, Judy's my, we're ride or die forever. She's a sister, you know, and that's pretty wonderful to have that special of a human being. Did you, have you ever struggled with, you know, okay, so you're, you have, your Judy is your ride or die friend. Judy's had a lot of success. Has that been hard for you ever? In the beginning, um, I would lie if I'd say no. Um, now it's just absolutely not. You know, now it's I want her to have all the successes in the world. Um, and I would say it's been this way for a while. And I think that's how we got so close is that mm. the, the competition is, was removed. Um, yeah. And not that we ever were. We, I feel like also we were such different actors um that it never felt like we would be up against each other you know um in that way but i mean i was her date at the golden globes when she went like we you know like yeah awesome it just there that's fun it's really fun she was she was on a whole thing with um oh gosh the movie with george clooney Oh, 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 the Hawaii one, the yes. Hawaii one, the 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 descendants. Yes, the descendants. Um, they were on this whole awards world, and I was like, just had nothing to do in life. And she, I, her husband at the time was super busy, and she was just like, just be my date to everything. And I was like, yes, you know, and um, would be at these weird little cocktail parties, and you know, like Al Pacino's there, or Jason Bateman. Oh my and, god. I was just like, so funny. And, um, but, but yeah, so it's just, it's kind of like, yes, girl succeed. It's about, you know, I mean, she's had a, a great career, but she deserves even more. I mean, I want that girl Mm -hmm. to the moon, but, um, but yeah, I'm I'm sure in the beginning, uh, you know, if I drug up all the memories, there was definitely like, why, why is one person be successful versus another. Well, yeah, it's completely human. I mean, you can, and two things can be true simultaneously. You can want to rah-rah your best friend and feel, find yourself, make this false equivalence that, you know, you're, you have to compare yourself to this Mm -hmm. person. And, and, and if I'm not doing what they're doing, then I'm not successful in whatever way. And she'll say this a hundred times over. And I think this is a, a real, point is she would not be who she is without the people that she has had behind her. I mean, right from the get-go, she had that manager, Chuck, in Chicago, at champion, Mike Muni, Leonard Roberts. I mean, he fought for them to become who they are, and they are 
some of the most successful in our class. So he was a real um, important part to get her where she is. And, and I think it's important, manager. the support, the support, yes. like the support. So, so I think the, what I'm hearing is, and we talked about Gina and I, and I also were talking this morning earlier about support. It's like, uh, and I think it's amazing that, that she acknowledges that because I think it's true that like support goes a long way, mm-hmm. a long way. And it, and, and it's not always just magic that someone's touch. I mean, it's hard work. They work their ass off and there, there's a bit of luck, but there's a lot of support behind the scenes, mm-hmm. uh, champions, people champion us in whatever we're doing. We find our champions and some in our class were ha- in my class, your class. Class, you know, whatever had had more championing than others, and that's just how I feel like that's how the world is too. Um, I think it's hard when you're young, right? When you're young, you're just like, why am I not? Be-? For me, I'll speak for myself. Why am I not being championed? Mm-hmm. And then you learn, like, oh, I'll champion myself and stuff. And then it, you really also learn that shit is not fair. Like shit is just not fair sometimes. Like casting at the theater school was a lesson in shit is the opposite of fair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. And and you, why, you know, one's chosen over another or whatnot. And- casting is not fair. Like casting in general is like, you know, working at, I worked at a casting office in Chicago, mm-hmm. just like as a freelancer and like noticing. And I'm like, oh my God, this is the most random. If people knew the, the, the arbitrary, it, it's such a bizarre thing. It's just, but at the theater school, it's college and we're children and we want it to be fair because that's, we're also paying, right? right. A lot. So that you're paying to not, to get treated unfairly. It's crazy. It's a crazy system. Absolutely. But you did do, I think you did th- at least three main stage shows, right? You did The Visit and- Oh, mm-hmm. that was at Victory Gardens. Oh, that was Victory right. Gardens. Yeah. Okay. But Gina, do you know what I was in The Visit? I was a, a twin eunuch with Judy. We walked, <laughs> we walked around with, oh, we were just talking about this because I was like, do you, I mean, what, who in their right mind, two girls, twin eunuchs. And because you were skinny. I mean, because like, that's yeah, what they I mean, skinny girls. So, and we just would walk around and follow that girl, Mary, whatever her name was with the red Anne hair. Anne-Marie Welty. Anne-Marie And I think we had like three lines and I mean... I remember Nick Bowling, and I love him. I love you, Nick. Um, would get so mad at Judy and I because we just were, we would just jerk around. And because I it think was you the- went crazy, you went bonkers. Like you were doing bonkers, which I thought was hilarious. Oh yeah, we oh we definitely were doing our own sideshow, and and he would just be like, "You're stealing focus," and I was like, and then he wanted us to shave our heads. This was amazing. <laughs> And we were like, no, we're 20 years old and this is a show. And so then he got all flustered and mad. And we, so Judy had that white blonde, crazy bleached hair. And then I had those weird, like sunk streaks that I had just. Yes, I had the same. Yep. Yep. And he was like, well, I, you, you both have to have the same dye your hair brown. So we went to Walgreens and we got these boxed brown in my nasty little studio apartment dyed her hair it turned purple and gray and all these like horrible fried it we had to cut it off 
we slicked it back. I have pictures. I'll I'll send you the pictures. And we have these little bowler caps. And that was my casting. So yeah, I'm in this great show to visit. As I got you. No, you know? I got you. I got yeah. you. What I, else were you in? What else were you were, wait, were you in Roar of the Grease Pace yes. Fell of the Crowd? Okay, tell us about that. I loved that. You know, it got a lot, it got a lot of grief, which I understand. And I, you know, you put 20 women together and there's gonna be some some stuff. Um, but I it was Betsy, who again, she's she's one of my 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 top just, you know, in my heart. And um it was fun. It was fun. And that's when I would say that Judy and I pretty much like became in sync. Like we were, and then Daryl Dickerson, who was also a really oh, good yeah. friend of mine. She was um, like the sidekick for, and we just had a blast. I, you know, we went into it like, this is so silly. Why not just lean in and say, yeah. So we did. So I liked that one. Um, I was also in the women, which oh, was right. Horrible. I didn't see it. I don't think. Oh, it was? Everybody hated being in that show. Every single person. It was Susan Lee. And oh, well. we all know exactly. And it was, again, Problematic. 20 women. And you have like three stars. And then there's 15 of us just at their, I mean, there's literally photos of us just at their feet. <laughs> and, and again, we had a hair thing. I, I don't know what it was with me. I think it was my way of rebelling against, but I had gone platinum blonde. And this like Bob, oh, whatever. Yeah. I remember that. And she was livid. She was like, I cast this role as a redhead. I had three lines, mind you. Hey, what? And yeah. I think she was a red, again, Jed, to your point, like she was. She was deflecting. a redhead. Yeah, something onto me. And I was like, no. And I was like, wake me. I don't care. I'm not dying my hair back. So they got me this wig. I look like Joan Crawford. I would walk around backstage with like wire hangers and be like, Rah! it was so bad that the opening night I went and I got my hair dyed back red because the ego in me could not go on stage with this horrendous wig. It was so, yeah. And then she had a sleepover. I just like, these, some wait, of these. What? Wait, oh, wait, yeah. wait, what? A real sleepover? Oh yeah. You never heard about the, the sleepover? Oh. No. Wait, what? <laughs> I can't wait to hear about it, though. We had a cast sleepover. So, again, it was like 20 women. And I, I, to my memory, I didn't have a fond experience. I'm sorry if other people did, but they were not my favorite humans, and I weren't whatever. And so I waited tables, and I said, yeah, I can't attend this sleepover. I need to make money. And, I mean, she – I just, from then on out, was, hey, she just, like – I think she probably had a poster in her office of like, I will take down this girl at any chance. I, we just, so I never attended the sleepover. So sorry, I don't have any fun, like juicy stuff. Oh, that's okay. Oh, okay. You, you okay. did the, you probably did the right thing. Like that was probably, you know what I yeah. mean? Like you had to do what you had to do. Well, that's what I remember about you is that you, you were a very independent person in terms of your thinking and your actions. And you didn't, you, in my mind, my perception, you didn't just go along with the crowd. You weren't that kind of a, 
that kind of a gal. Like you did your own thing. And I really respected that. I thought, oh, just because someone looked, and it was a really good lesson for me. Like just because someone looks a certain way and is from Texas actually doesn't, seriously, doesn't mean that they fit a mold. Mm -hmm. uh, And if you try to force people into molds, they rebel. You're a rebel. You're kind of a rebel. And I, I thought that was cool. I think it's, um, and Jada, you'll maybe find this out with your three. I was the youngest of three and I'm a big believer in child sibling placement, um, and who you become because of that. And so I definitely, most of it comes from being that third child, just trying to Mm -hmm. get the attention and have a voice and rebel against it all. And, you know. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. By the way, wig me should be the name of your solo show. <laughs> just wig me. Wig me. Just wig That's me. great. Yeah. Just wig me, bitch. Just We're almost going to have to uh, wrap oh. up, but any other things you want to make sure you talked about? Oh. Like say, oh. or like observations or things you've learned that you're like, I would never do this again. Or I would, I mean, it's interesting to me that you said you would do it again and again because of the relationship. So it's really clear to me that your relationships in your life are super, super the most important thing in terms of, because that was pretty, that was hell on earth a lot of times. So to do it, say you do it again and again, because of the relationships, that means a lot, you know? Yeah. I am a relationship person. That is you know, we've all hit pretty low lows in life. And I will say when you hit those low lows and who is there for you as your, your people, your, who picks you back up everything. It's, it's like, I can't imagine life without that. And if I didn't have that, where, how low would I have gone? What, you know, Mm. you know, don't ever want to go down that, but at the same time, it's like those, that people, and even as, like I said, I don't talk to them, you know, daily or weekly or monthly. We all know we have each other. There's a phone, we're all a phone call away. That's like, Hey, and then just this, like the reconnecting. And I, I, I love it. I, you know, it's, of course we have certain things that are like, rah, 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 you know, but I would never harbor anything odd or weird about times that we were from 18 to 22. You know, it's like, we were just, surviving literally surviving and um you know for the most part i think we all turned out pretty darn good as humans so yeah maybe we're not rich and famous most of Hey everyone, it's Gina just jumping on at the end here to say if you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast and also please leave us a five-star review if you feel so inclined. If you really love us, please write a review. Having those reviews, whether they're good or not, helps us with our algorithm in the matrix of it all, so it would be greatly appreciated. I Survive Theater School is an Undeniable Inc. production. Jen Bosworth-Ramirez and Gina Polici are the co-hosts. This episode was produced, edited, and sound mixed by Gina Polici. For more information about this podcast or any other goings-on of Undeniable Inc., please visit our website at undeniablewriters.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. <laughs>